0: Our passage this evening comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 13, and so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 13. Just as you're turning there, let me remind you that we're continuing our series in selected psalms. I'm not going to be preaching on all 150 psalms, because if I decided to do that, uh, it would far exceed my time in Jackson, at least as far as I perceive it now. So uh, we're not going to be doing that, but I will be selecting various psalms chronologically throughout the Psalter to be preaching on. And so tonight we come to Psalm 13. Hear now the word of God. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my own soul? Agony is in my heart every day. How long shall my enemies triumph over me? Look at me. Answer me, O Yahweh, my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have triumphed over you. My adversaries will rejoice, for I am shaking. But I will trust in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to Yahweh, for he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts here this evening. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this book that we call the Psalms. Lord, this book is full of great theology. This book is full of great teachings of your truth, but Lord, we thank you especially that this this book helps us learn how to speak to you. It gives us channels to direct our emotions as we find ourselves in difficult times and troubles or questioning our assurance or any other things that we can think of, really. Lord, we thank you for this book of Psalms. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your instruction here this evening. We pray in the holy. And precious name of Jesus, amen. I think it's a a fairly safe statement to make, and uh, wives, you can correct me on this if you want to, but I think it's a fairly safe statement to say that wives generally know the strengths and the weaknesses of their husbands. And they don't just know the strengths and weaknesses of their husbands, I think, but they tend to really know well the strengths And weaknesses of their husbands. Uh, You can ask Jordan about this. She knows that, at least for me, my greatest strengths tend also to be my greatest weaknesses. And just because I have a strength in one particular area of life doesn't necessarily mean that that translates to another particular area of life. Uh, Just to give you an example, uh, I, uh, with regard to my memory, when it comes to academics, when it comes to my vocation and my calling, I tend to be uh, thoroughly uh, good at remembering things. Okay? And uh, I don't say that in any kind of prideful way, but I just mean that when it comes to reading, when it comes to exams and listening to lectures and doing all of those sorts of things in my uh, time here at RTS, I tend to have a, a pretty decent ability to recall facts. and uh, that doesn't just because i have uh, that ability in my the academic part of my life doesn't mean for one second that that translates to every other part of my life because actually ironically and i think it's sometimes funny i have a very easy time forgetting things in my normal everyday life jordan will hand me a letter as i'm out the you know on my way out the door and she'll be like okay take this to the mail room please and i'll say okay honey you know, kiss her goodbye, put her on my shoes, walk out the door, and whoops, forgot the letter. And five minutes later, I get the text. Hey, you forgot the letter. And I have to come all the way back, get the letter, and then and go put it back. And and I, uh, <laughs> that's not very efficient, but that's, uh, that's just how it is. And I, I need to get better at that. I need to get better at remembering things. Actually, my favorite memory of me forgetting something was when I was in high school and I was uh, on the track team. And after practice one day, I'm on the highway driving home in my car... And for some reason, at that moment, I thought, oh, I forgot my car keys. So I'm driving down the highway in my car, thinking I'd forgotten my car keys. And so I stop, and I'm like turning around on the highway, thinking I must have left them in the locker room. They're at the school somewhere. I hope nobody took them. And it was at that point that I remembered that I was in a car, driving down the highway. I did not forget my keys in the school Or in the locker room, I forgot my keys were in the ignition of all things. So that's just a testimony to the weirdness of sort of the bipolar nature of my life. Good memory over here, poor memory over here. Don't know why, but uh, it's definitely something that I need to work on. So I have this weird problem of forgetfulness sometimes. You know, what's interesting is in our passage tonight... David brings up the theme of forgetfulness right away in verse 1 of this psalm. Only David isn't applying it to himself or to another human being. Rather, David asks the question, God, have you forgotten me? David is asking about the forgetfulness of God. And the reason why David's doing that in Psalm 13 is because David in this Psalm is experiencing some kind of trouble in his life, some kind of problem. And we don't know, it doesn't, the text doesn't tell us specifically what this problem is, but he's dealing with something, and he doesn't perceive that God is answering his prayer or that he's getting any kind of divine aid. And so what David does is he cries out and says, God... Have you forgotten me? Will you forget me forever? And David here, to express his emotion and his concern, and even to teach a theological truth, he builds this psalm for us. And I think it's a fantastic psalm. I love this psalm, and I want to share it with you here tonight. The psalm here I've broken down into three sections, and it's a really nice, easy outline to remember because each section is two verses, right? Verses one and two is David's turmoil as he expresses what's going on in his heart. The next two verses, verses 3 and 4, are David's outcry, as he cries out to God. And then the third section, the last two verses, verses 5 and 6, is David's trust. And each of these sections has something to tell us this evening as we look at this passage of Scripture. So let's look at this first section here, David's turmoil, verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, David asks four important questions, and they all begin with, how long? How long? First question, he says, how long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? Will you forget me forever? This goes back to what we were talking about before. David is in turmoil here. David is facing some kind of problem. We don't know what the problem is, but David has found himself in a position where he is wondering, God, do you even remember me? Now, of course, David is an astute theologian. The Psalms are just full of theology. And so David here, he's not, he's not questioning whether God has a, a failing memory like Levi does in his everyday life. David's not concerned whether God like literally forgot about him. Now, what David's concerned about here is whether God has abandoned him. God, have you forgotten to take care of me? What are you doing? Do you have other priorities? Are you busy? Are you doing something else? Are you tending to someone else's needs over there? What's going on, God? Why have you abandoned me? You know, what's interesting is that for unbelievers, this is why many people have rejected Christianity. The feelings that David is expressing here are actually pretty common among unbelievers, especially unbelievers who grew up in any kind of Christian church. Because for many of them, something tragic happened to them in their lives in the past. And what they do is they blame God for abandoning them. For example, someone's father dies, a mother passes away a family member or a friend or some other tragic event happens in their life and they say, well, God doesn't exist because if he exists, then he would have helped me and he would never have allowed this thing to happen. And so they find themselves in a tragic situation and that tragic situation drives them to think God has abandoned them and they give up God altogether. That's the same emotion that David is experiencing here. God, I'm in trouble. Why have you abandoned me? And he asked that question. And you see, David's not an unbeliever, right? David is a believer. David is a believer in Yahweh, God of Israel. And so even for believers, often when we have calamities brought upon us with little sign of divine aid, the idea of God's forgetfulness sort of, in a certain sense, thrusts itself upon us. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I've certainly experienced this before. Uh, praying deeply that God would answer a prayer of mine or that God would give me direction in life of some kind, that certainly isn't the, you know, a major uh, trouble, but it is a real trouble, a sort of intellectual trouble as I look for direction in my life and I pray to God and say, God, give me direction. And in some cases, when I, when I present the trouble to God and I pray to him, and I don't perceive divine aid coming my way, I don't perceive direction coming my way, it can feel as if God has indeed forgotten and abandoned me. Like there's silence on the other line of the phone, on the other end of the phone. And so for believers, we have this emotion too, this feeling of abandonment of God. And I think I've experienced this, I'm sure many of you have experienced this. That's what David's going through here. A sense of abandonment. The next question he asks is How long will you hide your face from me? Now, what David's getting at here is God has withdrawn his countenance from David. That is, what God has done is he has withdrawn the blessings of his presence and his favor. David is not feeling the presence of God, David is not feeling divine aid. He's not feeling like God cares. Like God is present with him in the trouble. And so what David does is he says, How long are you going to hide your face from me, God? How long are you going to be absent? How long are you going to withhold your favor from me? Sometimes we can feel like this too. Third question that David asked, verse 2. How long shall I take counsel in my own soul? Agony is in my heart every day. How long shall I take counsel in my own soul? Now, what David's saying is, in the midst of difficulty, uh, it's it's pretty common that one inevitably employs the mind to search for a way of escape. You know, if, if, if a soldier is in the midst of war, and he's waiting for help, waiting for the chopper with the machine guns to fly overhead and take out the enemy or something like that, if the soldier sees that aid isn't going to come immediately, that soldier is going to be employing his intellect to figure out what he can do himself to get himself out of this troublesome situation. That's what David's expressing here. David is saying, "Listen, God, you're not any you're, you're not anywhere. I I don't see you. I don't see your presence. You're hiding your face from me. You've abandoned me. Well, how long, God, are you going to leave me here to employ my intellect to figure out how I'm going to get myself out of this trouble?" God, I've got a temptation to just do this without you. And I don't know if I can. Because I don't sense your presence, because I don't see that you are with me, and because I think I I may have to rely on my own abilities to get myself out of this trouble, my heart is full of agony every day, dreading the fact that I may not have your help. You can see... David is in turmoil here. This really is the section of David's turmoil. Now, here, here's the last question that he asks, the end of verse 2. He asks, how long will my enemy rise up over me? How long will my enemy rise up over me? Now, David here, when he's talking about his enemy, he's not being abstract. He's not being um, spiritual when he talks about his enemies. He's, he's legitimately got enemies. You see, when David became king, right? We tend to think that, you know, in our basic understanding of, of Israelite history, we tend to think that when David became king, all of Israel was just overjoyed and everyone was so happy and they immediately accepted him because Saul was so bad. Now, that's what they should have done, of course, because David was the anointed king of Israel. God, uh, he was a man after God's own heart, and God had chosen him through the prophet Samuel, and so Israel should have accepted him, and many people did. But you see, when David came to the throne in Israel, he was not at all universally approved of. Because you see, many people who didn't know the full story thought that David was a usurper. That David had taken over the throne against God's will and had usurped it from Saul. And if you, if you didn't have the account of First and Second Samuel telling you the truth, you, you, you might be prone to think that. David's not the son of Saul. Somehow Saul dies and David then becomes king. Yeah, that guy's a usurper. He shouldn't be on the throne. So David had his share of enemies. He had his share of people trying to take the throne from him. In fact, if you read the account in 2 Samuel, you can read about some of these people that try to take the throne from David. And uh, it, it, was a, it was problematic for him. He had real enemies that were after him but aside from david being king and having enemies before david was king he really had enemies when saul was alive because saul was chasing him down trying to kill him i'm reading through the book of first samuel right now in hebrew for one of my classes this summer a directed study with our professor of uh, biblical languages and uh, it's amazing how much saul wanted to kill david (laughs) Right? When, you read things, you know, when you read something in a different language, especially the Bible, you read it in the original, you really have to read slowly. And as I've been reading 1 Samuel slowly through in, uh, in the original Hebrew, it has been uh, fascinating to me to see Saul going after David time after time after time. David had no rest. He had legitimate enemies. They were real people that wanted to kill him and take his throne. Now, we don't know if David wrote this psalm while Saul was after him or if David wrote this psalm during the early years of his kingship. Or I mean, we don't know when David wrote it. But what we do know is that throughout his life, David had enemies, let me tell you. And those enemies were after him. And what David's concerned about here is he expresses his turmoil to God as he says, how long shall my enemies rise up over me? Whatever problem he's he's found himself in, the enemies seem insurmountable. And they are trying to destroy him. And he doesn't know what he'll be able to do without the help of his God. Now, just, just to stop for a second, I want to ask you to think about this. What are your enemies? What are my enemies? What are our enemies or our problems that we have? today ourselves that cause us at times perhaps to question whether God has maybe abandoned us now maybe you say nope I've got good faith I've got strong faith I never question whether God abandons me well I'm suspicious of that but just for the benefit of the doubt let's just say that you're right praise God I'm glad you have that strong faith but not everyone does some people really do Uh, Worry about problems in their life that they have to deal with and they are afraid that God has abandoned them. Now maybe they wouldn't express it that way. Maybe I wouldn't express it that way. But sometimes we feel that way. Sometimes we feel like David feels here. Now what are your problems that you fear? Maybe it's a personal problem. Something that just affects you. Maybe it's a a sickness that you have that you're not sure what the future holds. Maybe there's an unbeliever in your family or among your friends and you're not sure what's going to happen to them because they continue to reject Christ and you pray to God over and over again, God, please work in their hearts and it seems like God has abandoned them and is not answering your prayer. And it seems like these problems overwhelm So your problem could be personal, something that's specifically affecting you or your family. Maybe the problem, though, is something bigger. Maybe it's a problem that's affecting the world. I mean, we've got a host of problems affecting the world right now that are generating a great amount of anxiety in our world. Focus on the Family reported that that their uh, um, call-in lines for their counselors are skyrocketing compared to normal times in the last few years because of the whole coronavirus epidemic that we are currently in right now. Maybe the problem that you're facing, that enemy that seems to be rising over you, is fear about the virus. I know a lot of people say, no, I'm not worried about it at all, the whole thing's a hoax, and all right, fair enough. But some people are worried about it. Some people really do have fear over that issue. So maybe, you're, maybe it's some kind of big world issue, like the virus, that's your problem, that's your enemy, that, that is causing you to question whether God has abandoned you or whether God has abandoned the world. For me, I've been thinking a lot about the, the riots that have recently come up. And uh, the virus is one thing because it's, a, it's an impersonal problem, an impersonal enemy that we have to deal with as uh, uh, people. But you know, the riots are another thing. That's not an impersonal enemy. That's a personal enemy. Those are human beings hurting other human beings and destroying property and just making making, uh, cities into places that are just not safe to be. And maybe that's got you concerned. Maybe that's the problem where you say, Oh man, my enemy is overwhelming me. Will it come to my city? We all have things that cause us to worry. We all have things that perhaps make us question whether God has abandoned us. And again, we may not say it that way, but we may feel that way. Now, how does David deal with his problems here? This is a a very important question to ask. How does David deal with his problem? Because sometimes we can think about our problems, we can think about the things that are making us afraid. And we can curl up in a ball and get really scared and anxious and frozen. Well, that's not what David does. When David is concerned about his enemies, he doesn't curl up in a ball and hope things get better. No, what does he do? His turmoil drives an outcry. It drives him to call out to God. And that's our second section here, verses 3 and 4. David's outcry. Verse 3. What does he say? Look at me. Answer me. O oh, Yahweh, my God, give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He cries out to God. Now notice here that David is crying out to God and saying, Look at me, answer me, not in a spirit of unbelief, but in a spirit of faith. I love how Calvin puts this in his commentary here on Psalm Thirteen, Calvin notes that David cries out to God, not from a lack of faith, but from the strength of faith. Otherwise, why would he call out? See, this is a noted different response of David than someone, say, who is an unbeliever who's experiencing the same emotions as David. Remember, the emotion here is something bad is happening in my life. And I'm worried that God has abandoned me. You know what the unbeliever does? The unbeliever turns away from God. The unbeliever says, well, I guess God abandoned me. Fine, I'm going to go do my own thing. David, as a believer, has a totally different response, exactly the opposite. When David is faced with trouble, and when David thinks God has abandoned him, David doesn't say, well, I guess God's abandoned me and walks away. No, what David does is David says, God, where are you? He cries out to him. Look at me. Answer me, God. This is the response of faith, believing that God will actually do something. And so crying out to God in distress is not a result of the lack or weakness of our faith, but is rather a sure mark of true faith. When David cries out to God and demands an answer, demands that God hear him, that's not a sinful cry out. Uh, that's a righteous response. David is showing us what we need to do when we find ourselves in situations where there are problems that we don't know what to do with. And we feel like God's abandoned us. We need to cry out to God. David says, give light to my eyes. The light there is, a, is just a, um, a metaphor for life. What David is saying is, give me life. Don't let me die in the midst of of this trouble give light to my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death literally in the Hebrew it says lest I sleep the death lest I sleep the death that's very abrupt very dramatic lest I sleep the death David's afraid for his life That's how great his problem is. And what does it do? It drives him to turn to his God. Now, David asks for God to give light to his eyes for two reasons. One, lest he sleep the sleep of death. And then the second reason is in verse 4, which he says, Lest my enemy say, I have triumphed over him. My adversaries will rejoice for I am shaking. So here's David's second reason. The second reason he wants God to give him life, to come to his aid, is because he perceives that if God doesn't come, his enemies will destroy him, and they will triumph. They will prevail. Now, here's the thing. Okay, David is not seeking self-glory here. Right? David is not saying, God, you better come help me, because if you don't come and help me, Then my reputation will be destroyed. And we wouldn't want that, would we, God? We want my reputation to stay up to snuff. We want my reputation to uh, be kept intact. Now, David is not giving a response of pride here, he's not requesting that God save him so that he can save his pride and his reputation. Now, what David is doing here is he is trying to preserve God's reputation. See, David is actually playing a card that Moses played in the Pentateuch. More than once in the Pentateuch, Israel sinned. Well, Israel sinned a lot, okay? But more than once in the Pentateuch, Israel sinned, and God was about to destroy the children of Israel in the desert. And Moses comes to God, and he says, God, don't destroy them. Because if you destroy them, what will the other nations say? All the pagan nations, if you destroy Israel in the desert, are going to say, well, see that? Yahweh wasn't able to bring the children of Israel out of the desert. And so what Moses does is he appeals to God's reputation among the enemies of Israel and says, God, you don't want to destroy your reputation, do you? And then we're told that God relented and he decided not to to destroy the children of Israel. Now, there's a huge theological discussion uh, regarding that particular passage and other passages like it. Did Moses change God's mind? Was God going to do something, and then Moses convinced God to do something else that was better? Well, (laughs) certainly not, right? We wouldn't want to say that. Uh, No, Moses did not change God's mind. God's mind can't be changed because God is immutable and so on. And uh, if God was able to be changed by Moses, then that would destroy Christian theology forever. And so uh, that's the subject for another day, though, the whole issue of, of that. The point that I'm trying to make here is that Moses knew that God wants his glory put on display, not only among the children of Israel, but among the enemies of Israel. And so, the way that God deals with his people is a testimony to all of their enemies. And David knows that. David doesn't want to be destroyed, not because it's going to destroy David's reputation, but rather, David doesn't want to be destroyed because it would lessen the glory of God in the eyes of David's enemies. See, it's the same principle at work. So what David has concern here for is not his own reputation, rather, he wants to put God's glory on display. And that's an important lesson for us to remember, as sort of a little bit of a side note. We ought not to be concerned about our own well being for the sake of our own well being. We ought to be concerned with the trouble that we're in and receiving deliverance, because deliverance from our trouble brings glory to God. And that's what we should be concerned about. All things to the glory of God, not for our own benefit. David teaches us that here. All right, so that's the second section, David's outcry. What does his turmoil motivate him to do? Not turn away from God, but rather to turn to God. And he asks God to look at him and answer him and save him from his enemies for the sake of God's glory. And now here we get to our last section. David's trust, which is verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5 with me here. David says, But I will trust in your steadfast love, and my heart will rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to Yahweh, for he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, there's a load of things in these verses, but notice the immediate tone change. David is saying, God, save me, answer me, help me. My enemies are going to triumph over me. And then suddenly in the last two verses, he says, but wait. Here's what I'm going to do. I will trust in God's steadfast love. Now, that word steadfast love that you're looking at in your English text, it might be steadfast love, it might be loving kindness, something like that. The best translation for this word is actually covenant faithfulness. There's been a lot of scholarship done on this word, and I think this is very good to point out. When you see the concept of, of loving kindness or steadfast love here, the Hebrew word chesed would best be understood as covenant faithfulness. Why? Because God is always faithful to his covenant people. And that's what this concept of the Hebrew word here is pointing at. It's pointing at God's faithfulness to the people that He's in covenant with because God always keeps His covenants. He always keeps His promises. And what David's saying here in verse 5 is that I am going to bet on the fact that God is going to keep His covenant with me to save me. God is faithful to His people. And he will never abandon me. Oh, he might reap burning coals on me. He may bring judgment upon me for my sin. He may bring enemies to destroy me earthly. But ultimately, God is faithful. And I will be with him in eternity. Reading into it a bit, that's what David's saying here. I can trust in this God because he is faithful to those who are in covenant with him. And notice that second thing David says here. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. That word for rejoice there in verse 5 is the same word for rejoice in verse 4. When David says that if God doesn't save him, his enemies will rejoice. So what David is saying is, you know what God, if you don't save me, my enemies are going to rejoice. But I will trust in you. And by trusting in you, I know that I'm going to be the one who rejoices because your salvation will come. Your deliverance for me will come. Now, here's a question for you. Where do you and where do I find our salvation? Where do we find our salvation? Where do we search for our deliverance? Where do we search for our own hope? When we're presented with trouble, when we're presented with some kind of issue in our lives that causes us to turn to God and seek for help, where do we search for our salvation? Do we turn to God? Do we turn to God's Word, this precious book, this revelation? Of God. Do we turn here? Is this our first response? I suspect not. I, I hope it is. But I think for many of us, including myself, our tendency when we run into problems in our world, when we run into to things that make us nervous and scared, our first tendency is not to turn to God, but rather our first tendency is too often, I think, to turn to something else. And particularly as I think of the issues that we're dealing with today, the virus, the riots in all the major cities of the, the country, do we search for hope and deliverance by looking for good news on Fox or CNN or NBC? In other words, when we hear bad things happening, does that drive us to read the word more or does it drive us to watch the news more? Or to scroll endlessly and mindlessly through Facebook, hoping that we'll find good news there. Because I know a lot of Christians that have found themselves almost addicted to news media in this whole craziness of the, of the pandemic and of the, the riots. They're just constantly looking for good news. They can't go to sleep at night unless they watch the news because they have to find out what's going on and they have to look for their good news. Is that where we want to search for our salvation? Is that where we want to search for our hope and our deliverance? I'm not saying that watching the news is evil or that we shouldn't watch it. We should be watching the news. We should be staying informed. But let's check our motives here. Are we searching for our good news in the news? No, that's not what we should be doing. When we are searching for good news, when we are searching for deliverance, we need to turn to the Word of God right here. The pages of sacred scripture. This is where as Luther said, we encounter God. Is right here in his word. This is where we encounter God. This is where we find our salvation. This is where we do what David did. I will trust in the covenant faithfulness of God, and my heart will rejoice in his salvation. And then verse 6 here, And I will sing to Yahweh, for he has dealt bountifully with me. He has dealt bountifully with me. The Hebrew phrase there, dealt bountifully with me, that you're looking at in your English, could be translated as, he has looked after me, or even he has completed me. That is, God has provided everything that I've needed. Notice the verb tenses here. This is really important. Notice the verb tenses in these last couple of verses. I will trust in your covenant faithfulness. My soul will rejoice and I will sing to Yahweh. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. In other words, why am I going to trust in God and sing to him? Well, David says, because he has dealt bountifully bountifully good with me in the past. Because of God's faithfulness in the past, because he did what he promised to do in the past, I can trust him for the future. See, this is amazing. David trusts in God to bring his deliverance, and he pledges allegiance and praise to God before he's even received the deliverance. And he does that on the basis of the fact that God has always come to save him in the past. And he has completed him. He has filled in what is lacking. He's always been there for David in the past. And so David knows he can trust him to be there in the future. And he pledges allegiance to God. And the coming salvation that he trusts will be there to deliver him from whatever problems that have caused him great turmoil and great angst in the present. Now, folks, that is exactly what we need to do today. If we find ourselves in a situation today where we are struggling and in turmoil over whatever troubles are in the world, our personal issues that we have or the world issues that are going on or whatever giving us anxiety, whatever is causing us to fear... Here's what we need to do. We need to remember God's faithfulness in the past and turn to him for future deliverance. And folks, as New Testament, New Covenant believers, we, of all people, should firmly remember the great deliverance that God has brought for us 2,000 years ago. The greatest problem that God ever saved us from was the problem of sin. And he dealt with it definitively and finally on Calvary by the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to pay that sin debt we deserve and to live the perfect righteous life we could never live so that we might be justified before God. God has been faithful in the past. We have seen that. Now in the midst of our fear, let's turn to him now and trust him because we know that God will be faithful in the future. Praise God for this great lesson that we learn here from David in Psalm 13. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us do what David commends us to do here. Our Father and our God, we thank you for Psalm 13. We thank you for this great message of David. Lord, there are things in this world that certainly will cause us to fear. Many of us fear all the crazy things that are going on in the world right now. Some of us don't. But regardless of whether we are fearful now or not, we will all fear at some point. And Lord, I pray that whenever we find ourselves in a position where we wonder if you have forgotten us, where we wonder if you have abandoned us, Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself. Help us not to respond by turning away from you, but rather by crying out to you and seeking you and trusting in your past faithfulness as the basis for our allegiance to you as we await your future faithfulness. Lord, we know you are sovereign, you are powerful, you will take care of all of us, no matter, what's, no matter what is going on. And Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness, and we pray that you would work the message of this psalm deeply within our hearts. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.